Welcome to Cinematalk, the podcast of the UW Cinematheque. This is Mike King. I'm a programmer here. While our campus theaters remain closed, the Cinematheque continues our series of free view-at-home movies with Fauna. In a rundown Mexican mining town, Luisa brings her boyfriend Paco home to meet her family. They're both actors, and the visit grows increasingly and hilariously awkward as Luisa's father becomes fascinated by Paco's minor role in a television phenomenon. Fauna's exploration of performance deepens as the film reinvents itself halfway through, reconfiguring its characters into a mystery plot set at a nearby hotel. Scenes and characters begin to repeat and revise each other's earlier incarnations, creating a deadpan mindbender that grows more entrancing with each beguiling detour and invites a parallel universe of interpretations. The Cinematheque is providing a limited number of opportunities to view Fauna at home for free. To receive instructions on how to view at home, simply send an email to info at cinema.wisc.edu with the subject line Fauna. This view at home presentation is presented with the support of the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Latin American, Caribbean, and Iberian Studies program. Our guest this week is Nicholas Pareda, the writer, director, and editor of Fauna. His work has been the subject of more than 30 retrospectives worldwide in venues such as Anthology Film Archives, Pacific Film Archive, Jeanjou International Film Festival, and TIFF Cinematheque. Fauna premiered at the 2020 Toronto Film Festival and has gone on to play the New York, San Sebastian, and Los Cabos Film Festivals. Here's our conversation. Like a lot of your films, Fauna is initially concerned with and finds humor in everyday situations. Things like bad GPS directions or where to go for dinner. Um, now, Fauna eventually heads in some more unusual areas that we'll get into, but I thought we might start, like the film does, in the realm of the everyday. What does it mean to you to depict these kinds of everyday moments and relationships through cinema? I mean, it's at the center of what I've always been doing, and I haven't really questioned it much. I mean, the whole sort of philosophy behind the films, I guess, from the start was that our lives are significant, even if they don't seem so. <laughs> that even though, you know, a lot, myself and some, most of the people I know, I think, not everyone, but most uh, have lives that are somewhat. Uh, on cinematic and if cinematic is the extraordinary but i feel that you know because i base the films to a certain degree uh, in experiences and things that i observe and those things tend not to be necessarily sort of life-changing or or sort of very grandiose then i feel that, that i'm trying to look for the things that are interesting or that interest me at least in in small things, not necessarily because of a fetishism for small things, but just because that's my life and that's the life that, that I observe and that surrounds me. So, um, and, and for example, like I'm not so interested in, let's say, beginnings and endings of relationships because while we all kind of live through those moments that are quite intense, the majority of my life, hasn't been those beginning and ends, but has been something else. And the beginning and ends of relationships tends to be intense in a way that is the same. Whereas the, I mean, maybe not exactly, but there is something about sort of being in the middle of things that seems 
more complex to me than sort of the height of of climaxes and of of uh, both emotionally and in, in terms of plot there is something about the middle of things that has a lot to do with my life and uh, that so I'd, I'd like to explore those situations well and you find a way to make these everyday scenes memorable um, like you say this has been something you've explored throughout your work but you know I often think of that scene in Juntas where they try and figure out what's wrong with the refrigerator by listening to it or testing it um, Fauna is full of great little exchanges like this like the awkward situation with the cigarettes, for instance. Um, there's a way in which it sort of is, begins in that way, almost like uh, meeting the in-laws kind of film. Um, yeah, it's funny because sometimes I end up in these, I mean, if you think about, for example, which is totally out away from my territory, that's what stand-up comedy is today in some ways. I mean, I don't, I'm not like a very savvy in that universe and I don't watch it too often, but a lot of let's say stand-up comedy is based on everyday interactions and they find you know finding the comedy in those things and in some ways while my films operate in a very different space there, there is something that from different places you can understand that there is some comedy to the human experience the everyday human experience has a side of it that is sometimes funny sometimes a bit pathetic sometimes actually hilarious and there is an infinite sort of amount of everyday scenarios that one can think of that uh, that are very particular to to each situation and so i think that there's just so much there and so I'm, I'm not trying i mean some of my films are a lot more bleak and a lot more sort of that lack total comedy and some because of the circumstances, but this because it's totally amid the in-laws sort of situation, then it feels like, you know, those situations tend to have these, you know, tense moments that are actually kind of funny mm -hmm. because people, you know, project ideas about the others constantly and so on. Yeah, I mean, I probably, I saw this movie at the virtual Toronto and I probably laughed at it more than the quote unquote more, you know, movies that are trying to be, you know, a conventional comedy. Right. Um, as the film moves into its second half, we're led to think maybe it's going to become a more conventional kind of movie. And, you know, perhaps by your standards, it does a little bit, but it certainly doesn't go that way entirely. Um, the sort of mystery setup that emerges is quickly derailed by this business with the hotel towels. And it becomes clear that you're after something else. What led you to want to explore these more genre kinds of storytelling in the second half? So there was a, I ran into kind of a complication I, with myself by trying to make a film that talked directly or to me directly, perhaps a little bit indirectly, if you're not immersed as much as I was thinking about these things, about the representation of violence in media, particularly in Mexico at the moment with all these TV shows and all this, uh, mainly because we're living through the violence right now. And so these are like sort of TV shows that are representing our contemporary problem. And that's kind of unique. I mean, unique to me, at least. I always felt like I was watching movies that, are, that deal with sort of important historical events, particularly important traumatic historical events, sort of in retrospect, like, you know, movies out of the Second World War, movies out of Vietnam and so on. And suddenly there is this 
crazy proliferation. It's not like some uh, one person decided to make a film about this, but there's a crazy proliferation of films and TV shows and books and contemporary art pieces and so on about the sort of violent situation that's happening in Mexico. And I wanted to kind of think a little bit about this and what it means, what, what these representations mean, how uh, our understanding of the current uh, historical moment comes through via these representations as opposed to the actual experience of it because even i mean i spent a lot of time in mexico and most of my friends and family are there we don't experience we know about this we know about this latent sort of violent situation but because of my world we live in mexico city or sort of away from these uh, more um, dangerous places we start consuming our own history or our own contemporary moment through Netflix or whatever else. And that seems odd. And so I wanted to think about this. But in the process of thinking about this, so I had to, in, in order to engage with it, suddenly I needed to engage with that representation as well, which became paradoxical and became sort of, I'm doing what I'm criticizing. And so how to deal with all of that and how to grapple with all of that was complicated. And I'm not exactly sure at the end how I whether I managed to steer away completely from it or where I'm falling actually in some of the pitfalls that I'm trying to criticize. Uh, so it was a, it's complicated territory. But in some ways, my attempt was to generate in the second half a kind of a possibility for the representation of this violence in a different way. And then I betray my own sort of impulse by making the whole first half of the second half, let's say, like a big chunk of the movie in the second part, be about a missing towel and about you know the the little problems in the hotel and the the sort of tension between the the staff and the and the tourists there, and so it stops being about what it was supposed to be in a way. So like it, it, the film announces sort of a detective uh, mystery thriller. And then suddenly it falls again into this sort of uh, mundane nothingness. Then I try to kind of pick up again into that world, but it's very late for that at that point. And then nothing gets really resolved. It all stands. There's, for example, one important scene to me, and it's resolved in a way that it's, I resolve it by not resolving it in some ways, which is when he finally gets a phone call from this person that that he's been looking for. Mm -hmm. Then then they meet. It's not the actual person. It's someone that's there kind of, uh, that impersonated that person and that is is there to tell him, like, you know, stop looking for this disappeared activist. Um, you know, you're entering very dangerous territory. And that's more sort of genre, right? Like, so it's like the detective mm -hmm. that finds a lead, gets to the place. It's not the person that they, that, that he expected to meet. And then uh, now he's in this tense moment. But then that same scene gets resolved by this woman from the hotel showing up and then goes into this weird rant that is very mm -hmm. important. It's kind of impossible to understand what she's saying. I had some ideas, but at the end, I realized what she's saying is totally nonsensical. <laughs> And so you end up a bit lost as opposed mm -hmm. to being, so as opposed to finding a clue that will need to lead to the next thing, it's kind of the moment in which the genre enters the most in the, in the second part, which is that moment, I think, that suddenly you're lost again. So in a way, instead of 
sort of creating the the this the the criticism that I wanted, I I don't know how to approach. It's very difficult. I never managed to to resolve the actual uh, sort of task, which was to to sort of set up to criticize directly these representations. Mm-hmm. And so instead, I sort of hint at it. And then I hope that's enough in the sense that if, if by hinting at it, I'm hoping that audiences would, that manage to sort of follow me in this path at the end, try to reflect a little bit upon these ideas. At the same time, all of these things that I've been talking about it, it are things that I think are interested to talk about because the other sides, which is more important for the film itself, are less interesting to think to talk about. It's more interesting to watch, but all these of these things about the, my my attempt uh, to wonder about uh, these representation of violence are at the end of the day secondary. Mm-hmm. They are like the they're at the, they're the engine of why I make this film of why I set up these situations. But at the end of the day, they're more particular. It's not a film that is. Uh, a direct criticism of anything at the end. It's more a film that deals with a small family and their relationships and and a bit of fantasy and of of particular characters that has kind of this so- social and perhaps even sociological ideas that surround it, but um, that are quite interesting to me. But at the end of the day, uh, I've read some books about this that are a lot more. Uh, incisive and a lot more uh, precise than I could ever be in a movie. Yeah, yeah. So it was I a mean, departure in a way. Sure. I mean, you know, the, it's not a violent film by any means, but the off-screen, it's sort of mentioned, sort of like it was an off-screen thing that's happening. I think one of the first lines in the movie, right, is "This must be dangerous place at night" or something like that. Um, but probably another scene that you mentioned that sort of does bring this up is um, when the character Paco reenacts that scene from uh, Narcos. Um, but it seems to me that it's as much about just the nature of performance. Um, is that something that you were exploring in this movie in particular? Yeah, I mean, so there, that scene encompasses a lot and perhaps it's, I mean, it's, uh, I think it's probably the best scene in the movie. And it's a scene that encompasses the I all of the ideas at once is the the family kind of like awkwardness of meet the father and all that all those problems. Then mm-hmm. there is the idea that we we're talking about earlier about narcos and representation and so on. And I'll touch about a bit upon that in a second. And then what you mentioned about about performance and performativity, it was important because I'm making, in a way, the films I make are at once created through sort of imagining characters, but a big part of it is also, in some ways the characters are vehicles to make portraits of the performers in the sense that the the performers themselves are, and in particular in this film, because they play actors and in their, in their real lives they're actors themselves. And Baco in his real life is plays a part in Narcos. And he is, the, the scene that he's, recreating is a scene that he had in the first season of Narcos oh, yeah. where he didn't have a dialogue and the scene that he then recreates when he 
when he invents a scene for the, or acts out a scene for the father is a scene that is the same scene that he does first silently, but he takes the place of the, of the main character, which is Diego Luna in the, awesome. in the series. And so, uh, so it's a combination of all of these things. I'm trying to also talk about acting and what it means for these people to, to be actors and to, and to act and to be, uh, you know, it's, it's not the first time that this happens to them, whether it's in a fiction film or in real life, that someone says, you know, like, you're an actor, like, you know, show me, give me something, right? So, uh, so I was interested in these ideas of performativity also because my attempt at working with these people also is that I, I hardly direct them the reason. Mm. So I write characters that I'm already thinking about the people that are going to act in them. And then I don't talk to them too much about what to do. They, they just kind of read it. They understand it. They perform it however they want. And we also have a kind of, I mean, we've made many, many films together. So they have like an understanding of kind of what more or less I'm thinking about. And also they know that the, the point is not to put on a mask, but to transform what I wrote into something that will work for them, as opposed to them transforming themselves into something that works for the character. So what changes is the script, not the person. Mm. Also, so the character changes in order to fit the person, not the other way around. And uh, I mean, and this film deals with this constantly because it's about what happens when they're asked to act and then what happens when in the second part of the film they all have to act other characters and how you know what changes in their movements and their uh, disposition and the way they say their lines and the way they they speak and so i had a lot of questions about whether they were gonna act differently in the second part or whether they were gonna um talk the same way they talk in the first part which resembles a lot the way they move and talk in real life in some ways and for me like a, so a big step was to get those wigs yeah. and so the wigs were were it was a strange thing because i'd never i never attempted to have ridiculous wigs Right. So I wanted to, I, I asked them to, to just have normal wigs, like good wigs, <laughs> like, like film wigs. And then, they, you know, they, they put them on and I realized, oh, this is not exactly, this is a little bit, you know, if, if I had like a makeup person and, uh, you know, yeah. professional person here, we'll have some, this will look better in some ways, but <laughs> we do everything a bit like this. So it's okay. It's, it's not a big deal. And then when I watch it and I realize, yeah, we could have calmed a little bit better those wigs or we could have, you know, have better wigs and so on. It's these things that film gives you that perhaps in other arts that are less that, or maybe film the way we do it, that we, I control very little, very little things. So my understand, perhaps the best way to understand it is that my, my process of filmmaking is closer to documentary filmmaking than one would think. And in the sense that I do have a screenplay, I do follow certain things, but I don't, you know, I look at a hotel that I like and then, you know, we go and we film there, but we don't paint the, the rooms, we don't change the furniture, we don't, you know, it's more or less how we find it, maybe we add one, or, one thing or another. And the same with the actors at the end of the day, I don't ask them to transform themselves, I ask them to, you know, to, to be themselves is a strange thing to say because who knows what you are, so it's difficult to tell them, but at least I, I try not to to put on a mask to characterize something. And so in this whole process of doing things this way, so I let the world invade the film. Mm -hmm. 
And so if the wigs that we got are these wigs and they look more or less, this is what we, we can do, then we just go with it. And then whatever meaning one can build upon it or whatever aesthetic that comes out of it, it's a little bit serendipitous. At the end of the day, I, I, I've embraced this idea that I'm not going to control everything. On the contrary, that I'm going to just try to get as much from the world and then hopefully it'll work out. I mean, sometimes it doesn't. And, and so I end up cutting a lot of scenes. Oh, yeah. And just perhaps at the end, just to, the last thing I'll say about this in, in relation to, um, you know, because I accept so many things that come from, that are uncontrolled, uh, then some things obviously will not work because I'm not so, you know, and so I end up cutting them. But because the films are not constructed in a way for the, for the most part, where I need, where where there's like a beginning, a middle and an end that are very concrete. And there is like a, uh, where scenes are linked necessarily in cause and effect fashion. If mm -hmm. I miss a scene in the middle, I don't break a narrative arc because there is not a concrete narrative arc to begin with. And so that way, what, what this allows for is that if a scene doesn't work, I can delete it. At least if it doesn't work for me, I can delete it and it, you don't notice it because it's not like, I mean, there are sort of cl little clusters of scenes sometimes, like the whole cigarette saga, let's say at the beginning, that there is like perhaps three scenes or two, two or three scenes like linked together that need each other. But, you know, if I delete the first scene when they're driving at the beginning and then and, and the movie starts after when they're just arriving to the house, it'll work. If, they, if you don't see them arriving to the house, I mean, in a narrative sense, Mm -hmm. Almost any scene can be dropped and nothing happens narratively because there's the buildup doesn't work that way. For me, each scene is there because I'm interested in it scene itself. And structure and the whole structure is not based on telling a story. It's more it's based on things that are a little bit more complicated to describe, like some mm -hmm. kind of sense of rhythm or a sense of uh, of pace, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that's so fascinating about this movie is that there's all these sort of internal rhymes within and between the two parts of the movie. And even in your films as a whole, they kind of can rhyme with each other, I would say, um, in the various ways that they're of a piece and deepen each other. Um, so like you're saying, you know, it's not so much about conventional narrative, but the use of repetition and variation um, in your films. Can you talk a bit about that perhaps a little more deeply? Yeah, so I'm interested, it's it's like at the core of things, I guess. So I'm interested in these concepts of repetition and variations and echoing, uh, both internally in each individual shot and in each individual scene, but also between different scenes. And it, they're also it's also a good way to organizing an entire structure. So. Uh, maybe it'll change at some point, but it's kind of like something that still excites me when, and I think maybe there's something nat natural to it. Like it's like when we see something that we seem to recognize and suddenly that's whatever it is that we see suddenly it's more interesting because we recognize something about it. It might be something that 
is not interested in and of itself, but because we look at it and you're like, this reminds me of something, or I feel like I've seen this before. Suddenly we're excited about that recognition. And so I tried to build that as a general, I mean, it's kind of like rock music is based in a way, or maybe many kinds of music when rock is very obvious that, you know, like you listen to a chorus and then when you listen to it again, it's kind of exciting because you've heard it before and now you recognize it. But uh, so I like doing it Within, which within a scene is nice because it's a bit more artificial and a bit more kind of intense when people like repeat some lines or, you know, there are scenes where they are rehearsing something and so you see it twice again, twice. And so you can, it's almost also like when you're those, uh, those little games where, where you have two pictures in a screen and then, or in a page paper, and then you have to find the differences between one and the other. I mean, the, all within scenes, it works like that. And then, uh, when one scene echoes something that happened earlier, this is used in sort of traditional screenwriting a lot in relation to like, but more in terms of plot again, sort of like payoff, you know, sort of like you set up something at the beginning of a screenplay and then towards the end, you, um, you know, you reveal something that then whatever was set up at the beginning starts making sense in a better way, but it's generally used only in a narrative sense, in a plot sense. So I try to use this idea of payoff beyond or not in order to sort of to make something in the plot resonate, but just a simple gesture, a color, uh, uh, a few, a joke, a few lines to sort of echo one another. And so also, and in fun is obviously like the, the 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 fact that the film is divided in two parts and it restarts and then uh, the the film the situations are different but there is like a the the first part starts with this sort of conflict of the cigarettes and the second part starts with this conflict of the towel and they're both kind of like uh, I mean the the cigarettes works better but but it's the same kind of gesture it's a gesture of the uh, mundane conflict and how different people kind of get out of the situation so I try to to constantly be thinking about these echoing things because they sort of feel nice I mean I've done this in other films and it's it started thinking about music actually sort of like with uh, started thinking about classical music with with Bach and like the Goldberg variations and how this idea of like being able to create a small sort of theme at the beginning and then making all kinds of variations from that theme to the degree that, you know, if you listen to the whole Goldberg variations, that'd be like there's some variations that seem quite a departure from the theme. And if you're a musicologist, I'm sure you can find all the connections, but there's this idea of like continuously, um, you know, using the same material to and, and renew it, co uh, constantly making it new, which, at the, at the same time connects to what I was saying at the beginning about the mundane, which has to do with, uh, you know, the mundane seems to be one thing because it's so simple, but then every day has to be a bit different or else you'll go a bit crazy. And it is different, luckily, right? So, you know, so the just the fact that uh, we're able to think about each of our days in even now that I'm like kind of stuck at home and teaching via Zoom, uh, each day is a little bit different to the next, and that's what makes the days kind of special. But it's all, in, and but the basis of it, the way I would describe them, they're kind of all the same. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but it's in the variation. And also, just the last thing I'll say about this is that in order to notice the variation, there has to be some kind of repetition. I mean, these things go kind of together, because if things just are pure variation, 
then the idea of the change is no longer uh, present. So like you, you notice the little changes because they're little, because there is something that is constant. Um, yeah. you, you talked about payoff with these uh, repetitions and variations, but you also uh, withhold it in a, you know, there's that long scene where um, they rehearse what's going to happen when um, Gabino meets the sister. And then we're like, I'm looking forward to seeing how you uh, play this off of each other, but you don't do that at all. And I, I mean, is there some satisfaction for you in um, leading us to think you're going to do that and then not give it to us? I'm not sure because I did shoot it, <laughs> that scene where the, where he meets the um, the girlfriend of the, the sister, yeah, where he, when when he meets uh, Fauna, where he meets Flora's sister, and it was not very good the scene. And then I thought it was at the crux of things. I mean, it was like the meeting of Fauna, the title, the you know, <laughs> the, the title of the film. It's like an important event. And it was not even badly shot. There was something about the pacing of it. There was something about the lines that I had written that, that were not working well. And so I use it for the trailer. And this, <laughs> I, trailers for me are a space for, because the films that won't sell, so I don't have, I mean, a trailer generally is just like an advertisement for the film, but because I don't have a need for advertisement because I'm not going to, because, you know, the, the films are not that kind of product uh, that is, that is, uh, you know, has like no, no value in terms of, they have no monetary value really. They're like, you know, I don't make much money of them. So making a trailer to sell doesn't make any sense. So I try to indulge myself by being able to put things in trailers that, that I was not able to find and that didn't work out in the, in the film, but that I kind of enjoyed. And then there's also like, if you're really, I mean, I don't think about this too much, but I guess if you're really curious and then you see that trailer and then you watch the movie, you're like, oh, that was the scene in which you, you know, but then it's not in the film uh, and in the trailer. But at the same time, I don't reveal anything. It's just kind of, you see this woman approaching with Fauna and they don't talk and they just kind of, actually they do talk, but I, I, I didn't like the dialogue. So you just see them and their mouth moves and you don't hear them, which at some point I thought about doing in the film sort of like presenting the scene and then you don't hear what they say. But uh, there is, a, I can't remember exact. I felt like the second part is a bit weaker and I needed to wrap it up a bit faster too. So, um, I mean, and, and other people have told me this, that the first part is kind of more engaging and then the second part is a little bit difficult to hold. So I needed to find also a way to cut scenes down so that, yeah, it then became kind of like a, a drag. and But at the same time, I wanted the scenes that I do like from the second part, I wanted to maintain them like in, the, in their entirety, which is like the rehearsal scene with the cigarettes and the scene at the at the restaurant with, with Baco trying to like being hostile. So there's a third rehearsal scene in the movie um, between um, Luisa and her mother, right? Um, and these are all performers that you've worked with for a long time. Um, and, you know, when you, ha you usually use their real names and stuff like that, and it can lead us to wonder, you know, how much they're playing themselves. Um, it would seems less so in this movie. Um, but what is fun about this movie is that, you know, you're able to introduce some new aspects. It's fun to see these people behave in this totally different way in the second half with the, I think the artificiality, artificiality of the wigs works for it in this way. Um, is there something that you wanted to try and push with your performers in a new direction or um, like what, what was that part of it like for you? Yeah. I mean, 
I've I've had a bit more conversations about this with Luisa because she is always kind of of the opinion that I'm sort of stopping them a little bit too much. She likes of all maybe Paco as well, Paco and Luisa, but Paco does, is not as vocal about it. But uh, Luisa, I feel that uh, she's more often complaining a, a little bit about not being able to be more of a performer, almost like you already got us, like professional actors, we're good at what we do, and then you just like limit all of our potential <laughs> in, the, in a sense. And so in the second part, there was this possibility. She still felt frustrated about how sort of how tame the whole performativity was. I'm just, I guess, not... Um, I'm very interested in these things of performativity, but I'm also interested in very minimal things. And so I'm, I get a bit worried about the possibility of losing uh, this sort of baseline that I like about them. When I, when I think about them being themselves, I don't talk about it in terms of um, biographical or, or psychological being themselves. I'm, I'm, I generally talk about it in very superficial terms of so being themselves in the way they walk and the way they sound and the way they, they move almost even in the way they dress because I try not, you know, they bring their own clothes. And so, uh, so yeah, so it's not about a matter of being, it's more like, it's really like academics would say like they're, it's more about their bodies, sort of like how these bodies move in space as opposed to how these people move in space, let's say. Uh, because what, I what I'm really interested in retaining from them is not what they're thinking, really. At the end of the day, what I'm really interested in retaining from them is their, uh, their superficial elements, the things that are, have to do with their bodies. And that's when I say portraits of the performance. I mean portraits in the photographic sense that uh, you that, you know that you get to say you know you cannot you there is something that you you hope you get something about their soul. Let's say in a very abstract terms about like who they are. Perhaps when you you look at someone's eyes and you get a sense of the kind of person they are. But at the same time, really, you know very little in a portrait. You cannot know. You know, some people seem a bit darker, some people, whatever. But at the end of the day, you do get a sense of how they look like and how they, you know, their physical appearance and their movements and their tone of their voice and things like that. Um, and so by pushing the performativity more, I fear losing that side of the portrait. So it's a kind of, it's a balance. And I think the most, I mean, when I watch really incredible actors, like really sort of... Um, like people that I think are like like Daniel Day-Lewis or people like that that I think are able to do so many things. What's amazing about those actors is that they're able to retain that quality of themselves no matter how crazy the performance becomes. There's something where they, they retain sort of a sense of that baseline that I'm talking about that I don't know what, what else to call it, but something about that you can still see. A, there's still portraits of those people even in the sort of in the heightened, in the most heightened sense. And I think it has to do with how good the performers are, but also how good those directors are able to sort of shape that. And I actually, I do fear that that can, that is a slippery thing. It very easily, you can sort of, uh, sort of lose the, the person by sort of pushing the performance. So I, I try to be, uh, and I'm very interested in that side of, of, of acting, of you know the, the sense of the portrait. So, so I tease a little bit. I, I in this film in particular, I try to push things a little bit. I've done this before when people sort of rehearse to be other people, things like that, in other films. But uh, 
here it's where I've done it the most. And I, I enjoy this also because I enjoy continuing seeing the actors behind these wigs and behind these masks. So it's not so much about transforming the characters into something else. It's about how much I can get away with and still retain mm -hmm. the original people. Um, your film, you know, like this film has a lot, it's very complex in all of its variations and uh, subtleties, but there's a practical economy to the way that you make movies. Um, just like you sort of said, you take uh, the hotel as it is. Um, you tend to use, you know, long shots. You let things play out at length um, in wide shots. Can you talk a bit about how you arrived at this sort of style? I mean, of course, there, there is a intellectual side of things that I can say, which I don't know if that's the reason, which has to do with time. And it has to do with something that can be called sort of like the elasticity of time in cinema. Something that I, I was interested at the beginning was this idea that, that because I'm interested in the mundane, I needed to capture the easiest way to, to, to sort of to relate to the mundane, I thought was through uninterrupted time because the mundane has a lot to do with this idea of like being of the, the sense that you know time is passing at a at a particular pace i guess like you're aware of the passing of time and the mundane to a certain degree uh, you know much more more than if you're like in very you know exciting scenarios and you're not thinking about you know whether 10 minutes have passed or not like you know your 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 head is somewhere else and so i felt that by maintaining the interrupted take i was going to sort of relate indexically to the to the life outside of the film so that that time outside will time in the frame will mimic time in real life let's say and then quickly you realize that it's not exactly the same that there's like a, a strange phenomenon that happens with film that suddenly whatever you're framing you know speeds up or slows down time as we experience it that there is not a and there is not an exact calculation of course and each shot functions differently and so finding that by you know by shooting things and realizing there's something strange here particularly happened in one scene in in a film called juntos that i made many years ago where uh, luisa and gavino are smoking a cigarette and having a hard time with each other it's like a seven minute take and they're like you know it's like a relationship kind of breakup moment it's not clear but it's like a it's a difficult moment in a relationship and when i was watching it the scene lasts like seven minutes which was a lot because or like nine minutes if the whole film is 70 minutes only and so it was like in one scene i had shot like 10 percent of the film and so it and it felt like a you know it's a very long time however when I was when I first watched it, I didn't watch it through a monitor. I watched it happening in front of me, and it felt too fast because they're going through many different emotions in a short period of time. At the end of the day, and if you were living that situation, like you're with your boyfriend, with your girlfriend, sitting in a, at a anywhere, a cafe, or whatever, and and something heavy lands in the relationship, and that you have to sort out, and you're at a point where you cannot even speak. Those situations are really long. They're not seven minutes long. It's not like, oh, I had this most intense moment with my, with my partner. It lasted seven minutes. Generally, you know, it's something that drags even for days, perhaps, or whatever. So there was something interesting happening between me watching this thing that was, that there's something paradoxical. There's something about, it feels like it's forever, but it's only seven minutes. In real life, this will take a lot longer. In film, mm -hmm. it should be even 
way shorter than this. So this paradox I liked, and I think that I mentioned this in terms of uh, elasticity of time, which I don't even know if it's like a term, but this idea that we can, by sustaining a single take, depending on what happens, what how we arrange the space, depending on what lens you use and so on, uh, time will start flowing slower, will start flowing faster. And this kind of movement is quite beautiful for a filmmaker because it's something very unique to cinema. It's something that you very sort of you're very aware when you shoot it, and you're very aware that you can manipulate it, and it's very invisible because what you're manipulating is not sound and image. So it's this sort of third important element of cinema. Whereas with the cut, what you get is an auto. Every cut has an ellipsis, even if it's like a cut on action. There's a sense that you can compress time or you can expand time. You can make you know a, a car crash last you know, one full minute, just the impact by cutting into different areas and just, you know, doing that. Or you can make something that lasts, you know, forever really quickly through cuts. But, and that ellipsis is a lot easier to achieve in some ways through cuts. And it's also becomes more entertaining to watch because sort of, I feel that a lot of my films, the heaviness doesn't come from the circumstances, but becomes from this sense of time that you're not, if I had a little, for example, the scenes when they arrive and they're, or any scene, but they're in the back of the car and they're just waiting for the parents to arrive. And then, you know, they're talking and so on. If I had shot it with several points of views, that scene will flow super fast. It'll be super entertaining. It'll be because you would be directed to all the little sort of things that I like about that scene, sort of like Gavino's laughter, Paco's sort of uh, uh, annoyance, uh, Luisa's rolling her eyes at the brother, all these things that happen, uh, I could point the director point to them, create kind of like a no time. You would never find out how much time ha passed there and you wouldn't ha never have a feeling of time. But with the individual shot, you have to put that, you have to put yourself that you're there, you're watching with them, you're living time with the characters. So it becomes a bit heavier because it's a scene where they're waiting. So you have to wait with them and who likes waiting. And then you might miss the whole in little interactions because it all happened at the same time. But if you catch them, I think it's a lot more uh, fulfilling as an audience. It's happened to me with other films that suddenly you see something happening in a long shot in a frame and you feel that you're the only one that saw it because there's other things happening and you saw mm -hmm. someone laughing and you think that's funny, that's interesting, that's nice. And so there's that side of things as well. Certainly that sensation is one of the things I appreciate about, about your work. Um, and, you know, you mentioned sort of other films that are uh, work at this tempo, let's say. Um, and, you know, your movies are, you know, with other movies, maybe let's say that people feel like it's going to be a long haul if, if people are working at this tempo. You know, you feel like you're going to settle in. These are going to be lengthy movies. But your movies tend to be shorter. And I just wonder, like you mentioned that um, that scene in Juntos is like 10% of the movie or more. You know, is this something that just sort of happens as you're making them or is it sort of by design? Do you have a, you know, idea about these movies operating slowly, but being brief on another hand? I'm not sure. I think it, it started being. My first films were really long in their first cuts. So I, I, I was writing a lot more scenes and I was shooting a lot more scenes and then I was deleting entire like you know a lot of stuff i was sort of uh throwing away a lot of things maybe because i felt 
I'm just gonna keep the things that I like the best and still have like enough of a universe. Um, and there was no need to expand it, I guess. But I'm not exactly sure because it's not made by design. I don't think about it too often, like how long the films are gonna be. At the same time, I have a sense of insecurity in relation to this because I don't, I think if a movie is gonna be, I know, I mean, I'm, I'm totally aware that the movies that I make you know, require kind of uh, a first, uh, you know, you have to kind of commit to something that's not going to be right away entertaining or perhaps at no point <laughs> entertaining. And so, but you kind of commit to that. Some people find them more interesting than others. But so I also feel that, well, I'm a, let's say I watch like a movie by Bellatar, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah. And so then I said, yeah, of course, I want to stay here for eight hours because look at the sort of precision in which everything is done and the sort of the monumental element of it. Plus, he is a bit, you know, I think it's, he's wonderful, but he also uses his music that is very captivating and makes the experience a lot easier to sort of to hold on. It's, it's different to watch something walk for 10 minutes in silence or just hearing the footsteps and if you have this wonderful sort of orchestration behind throughout that 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 takes you with it and so um you know i love his films and i don't mind that they're so long but uh, he is one of the best at this you know so <laughs> i when i feel that if i'm gonna also sort of try to do something that's going to be challenging maybe i don't need to push things to that degree Maybe it's okay that they're a bit shorter because if the if the journey is going to be heavy, at least it's going to be a bit short. <laughs> I, don't <know>. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the journey is so heavy. I mean, I think they're you know. I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think they vary, but anyway, yeah. I mean, it comes. I mean, also my wife always loves when we watch like Bresson films, and she's like, "Yeah, great, it's sixty-five minutes." Yeah, right. <laughs> or pre-code movies or whatever. Sure yeah, bang them out. So it's like. A, there is something about not having to commit to a three-hour movie. Because obviously, the films, at the end of the day, they're very short screenplays. If I actually don't, if I throw away the stuff that I didn't use, like in the pages, because, you know, each scene lasts so long that, you know, no matter how much I write, it, they end up being, you know, every 10 minutes of, of, of image is only you know, four pages or something. So it's uh, more or less, you know, so I can, you know, a 40 page screenplay for me, it's at least an hour and a half long generally. In addition to being a filmmaker, um, you also teach filmmaking at UC Berkeley. Um, here at the University of Wisconsin, you know, our faculty and staff have been scrambling to kind of reimagine the production courses, not only how to teach, but how to get equipment to the students and everything else. So I just wonder if you could tell us a bit about what it's like for you to teach filmmaking during quarantine. Yeah, it's a bit annoying for the students. I mean, it, it, there's two things. First is that it's, it's terrible not to be able to do practical things, which is right. something that students, especially in this type of schools, I mean, I uh, sometimes I wish I taught at an art school, I think, you know, because uh, you know the whole dynamics are different, but in, in teaching here, uh, these students are mainly taking studies courses and so, uh, or, you know, in all kinds of fields and, you know, or film studies. And so my classes are generally 
kind of kind of like when we're in elementary school and you had like PE or something, you know, like there is a suddenly you get to use your body, you get to go out, you get to sort yeah. of not sit and listen all the time. And so I try to, well, there is a lot of lecturing as well going on in my classes. There's also a lot of practical things. So I miss that a lot. Students get to pick up camera kits that are a lot smaller than usual at the beginning of the term. They keep it the entire term and then they, they return it at the end and they make their films whoever, with whoever they live with. What's nice about this for me is that it allows me to... I, I generally talk, don't talk about my filmmaking practices at all in my production classes. Like what I, I mean, I do talk about what I think, but I don't talk about what I do and how I do it. But this situation allows, you know, clicks a lot with a lot of my methods which have to do with, you know, be aware of your surroundings and find in what's more immediate and an attempt of like self-love almost like to say like what's around me and my life is is worthy of a film <laughs> and so in a way because they cannot just you know go location scouting and go into people's houses and or whatever and and find new things they kind of are a bit stuck shooting at the you know some of them are with their parents in their houses some of them are in you know in on campus with like two or three friends only and so they have to figure out what is interesting about their lives now and to work with minimal means with people that surround them which is i mean obviously i have a lot more flexibility than that but in a way it has a lot to do i mean i've shot for example films in my parents house and my uncle's house and in gavino's apartment i mean gavino's apartments as he moved have been in a couple of my films and uh sort of I, I try to, you know, everything stays within my reach. And so in a way, the students ha end up having to make these type of films. And also, for example, I, there's a film that I love called Oxide, mm -hmm. a Chinese film that was done by this woman with her parents and in a tiny apartment. And, you know, the apartment is so tiny. Yeah. The, make dumplings. the apartment is so tiny that the framing doesn't even fit. And she finds a whole aesthetic Five. Well, did, didn't she do no. the the? She made it scope with uh, like using construction paper on the on the lens. <laughs> I think I, I didn't know, but in any case, it's this kind of like very. For me, the greatness of that film also has to do with this thing of like not just the minimal means, but the fact of managing to find a whole new aesthetic out of not having space not having actors not having anything i mean i'm sure i mean she probably thought about this a lot but there is something it's such a good lesson for students absolutely so i think it's a it's a bad permanent situation but perhaps not necessarily a bad provisional situation for filmmakers <laughs> well thank you so much for your film and for joining us today thanks so much for having me